For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Yeah, so we're in uh, Romans chapter 15. We've been studying for a while now through this super practical section of this book. He really spends the first 11 chapters talking about why, talking about what God has done and how God has moved to give us every spiritual blessing, how Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins so that we could be made right with God. And then he gets into this whole thing that really is kind of referred to as walking with God. What does it practically live, look like to live the truth that he's given us in chapters 1 through 11? out. How do we live those truths out and how does that impact the way that we live and impact how our lives might look different from people who don't believe the same truths from scripture. And so as we've worked through that, we've talked about this idea of a lifestyle of worship, meaning that God doesn't just want a section of your life. He doesn't want just a, a category. He wants to be involved in every aspect of your life and he wants us to live our lives in a way that bring glory to him. And we talked about that in terms of the difficulties of living in a world where uh, the values of God and the values of man are often different. And that we live in this tension uh, with law and authority and government and bosses and in this structure where things are not all necessarily angled toward the greatest good, toward love. But we live in tension with those things, yet in subjection to those authorities. And then we spent the last couple weeks getting really practical, talking about ethics. How do we operate, you know, in a situation where God has given us in this incredible moral guidance, but there are times where we live in a situation where we have to pick the lesser of two evils or the greater of two goods, that the black and white uh, moral decisions are actually uh, not that common more often than not, we face a lot of grays. And how does God equip us and direct us for living a life, a moral life that's consistent with his character that brings glory to him while we live at tension with the world system? And so we kind of continue on that here in Romans 15, but he's getting super practical about our relationships with one another. He says in chapter 15, verse 5, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Jesus Christ. Our community and the way that we interact with one another, he wants us to be of the same mind. And I think some of us read that. I know I do. And I think, Ugh, you know, like I don't want to be just like everybody else. And I don't really want to be in a community where everybody thinks exactly the same way. Group think is not something that I personally find all that attractive, Right? So is that what he's talking about when he says, be of the same mind with one another? Well, remember the context, what he was talking about uh, in the previous chapter, part of what he was talking about was the, um, the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, and the Jewish people living together and having very different cultures, but it, talking to them about emphasizing the things that don't matter. Don't get caught up in meat sacrifice to idols, right? Don't get caught up in these out external rules of calendars and festivals and all these things. If you feel differently about those things, if your conscience tells you to go one way or another on those things, that's fine, but don't be divided about what you eat because there's so much that's more important. So when he's talking about this, it's in the context of he already has acknowledged that culturally they're very diverse and they're very different. And he's already said, you don't all need to be the same. We don't need everyone to wear the same clothes, eat the same food, listen to the same music, and think the same thoughts. But we can do all of those things by being united in the thing and agreeing on the thing that matters most. That's why it's the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. Let's agree in all the diversity that we have. Let's agree that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and that living your life God's way is what is most important. Let's be of one mind about that. You see, Rome was this incredibly diverse community. It was the New York City of the ancient world. It was incredibly eclectic. 
People came from all over, and there were all kinds of religions, all kinds of cultures, religiously diverse, economically polarized. The richest people in the world lived in Rome, right alongside the poorest people in the world. With the Gentiles and Jews working together, they had created quite a stir. You know, for a long time, Judaism was sort of this, from the Gentile Roman perspective, Judaism was this thing where it was like, it has very interesting philosophy, and their scriptures are quite compelling. But to become a Jew means to be circumcised and follow the Jewish dietary laws and all these other things, and they were like, "Uh, I think it's an interesting philosophy, but only so interesting. I'm not willing to go as far as they say that I need to go. Well, when Jesus comes along and fulfills the law, and they start explaining to people that we don't need to follow the dietary laws, we don't need to follow the ceremonial laws, now all of a sudden it flings wide the doors for all these people that have been very interested to investigate more deeply. And Judaism and Christianity are not two different things at this point. They're one thing. It's just that Christians are Jewish people who believe that the Messiah has come. And so it's creating this clamor within this community where people from different religious backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, all these things are coming together and they're having tension about things like meat sacrifice to idols. But they're being united in one purpose, in love. And as an onlooker, you could look at what was happening at the church in Rome. The church of Rome was a reflection of the culture of Rome. All these different people from all these different backgrounds coming together to say the love of God is what matters most. They were diverse in background, united in purpose. And God says this is intentionally part of his plan as a demonstration of his power. What what his plan is, is that we would have a community of people that are so different that you would look at it and you would say, what earthly reason could these people have for wanting to be together? I remember being very struck by that as a non-Christian in high school. I I wound up in one of my first Bible studies and there were like jocks and nerds playing cards together, you know? And I was very, I was very like, wow, you know, like they, they get along, Right. And those are stupid, you know, uh, junior high and high school cliques, right, that, uh, that don't last very long. But as we get older, those kinds of social strata, they, they stick around. The wealthy tend to hang out with the wealthy and the poor with the poor. And, you know, the conservative with the conservative and the liberal with the liberal. You know, we tend to want to surround ourselves with people who are like us. And in a vibrant spiritual community, you begin to look around the room and you begin to see that these people have, they really are from different walks of life. How are they able to be united in this way? And then the power of God is demonstrated by being able to see how people who without God would have very little to do with each other, with God in their lives, they become the closest of friends. And that is intentional on God's part to help us see that he is real and the way that he works is to bring us from all these different backgrounds and all these different places together and to adopt us all as sons and daughters, that we become the family of God, diverse in race, in culture, and in socioeconomic background. That's what he means by united in one mind and one purpose. And he says, so that we do that, so that with one accord, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. You see the point? The point of walking with God is to live your life in a way to glorify God, to manifest, to demonstrate the reality of the greatness of who God is. And that is in no place more profoundly expressed than in what happens when we come together as a community of different people from different backgrounds who love God. 
and who are willing to help other people see. It is the power of God in our lives. It is the word of God and the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ on the cross. It's those things that enable us to have real relationships with one another, even though we're so different. And we have to take exception to this in a way because this word here, he says, therefore, accept one another right? And acceptance in our culture is a big deal. It's something that we're, we're sort of uh, inundated with. It, it, it's, it's the most important thing is to be accepting of people who are different from you. And so when he says, accept one another, just as Jesus Christ accepted you to the glory of God, what does it mean? Does it mean like our acceptance in our culture or does it mean something else? We've got this cultural buzzword, uh, acceptance is big, tolerance is big. They're kind of used as a synonym for one another, right? And it means don't try to change what is. Acceptance, ultimately, in the way that our culture tends to use it, is to take the way that things are, acknowledge its existence, and don't try to destroy or exchange or, or change it. Just accept your fate. Accept that people are different. Accept that nothing is ever going to change. You go to Wikipedia and you look up the word acceptance, and I think it's a very accurate representation of the way our culture uses this word. You know, the way what words mean within a culture kind of change over time. And so putting it within the proper cultural context, acceptance for us, when we read the Bible translate a Greek word as acceptance... We tend to read it this way. Acceptance is a person's agreement to experience a situation, to follow a process or condition, often negative or uncomfortable situation, without attempting to change it, protest or exit. Acceptance as a concept appears in Eastern religious concepts such as Buddhist mindfulness and human psychology. Religions and psychological treatments often suggest the path of acceptance when a situation is both disliked and unchangeable or when change may be possible only at great cost or risk. Acceptance may imply only a lack of outward behavioral attempts at possible change, but the word is also used more specifically for a felt, hypothesized, cognitive, or emotional state. You know, we have to accept that there are mosquitoes in the world, right? As hard as we try to kill all the mosquitoes and cockroaches, they just come back. And so we just have to accept that. You know, we tolerate these things. And in a sense, a lot of the way our culture actually uses acceptance and tolerance is saying that we need to tolerate each other. We don't need to be close to one another. We just need to not mess with one another. And this form of acceptance, this form of tolerance would have us all bumping around in a vacuum, believing that our actions and intentions and our beliefs don't really impact one another, that each and every one of us is a completely individualized being that has the right to do whatever we want to do as long as it doesn't affect anyone else. And it's a lie because everything we do affects the people around us. Everything we do, we were made to live in community. And your choices, your beliefs, your actions permeate out in a powerful way, affecting people that you've never even met. Because that's the power of choice and how it works. This idea of acceptance in our culture says... Don't try to change something. Just accept it the way that it is. In fact, if you're not willing to accept what is, there's a problem with you. And we must take issue with that. When we see evil, when we see selfishness, when we see poverty, when we see hatred, when we see bigotry, we need not accept that. We need not stand back and say, well, we need to live and let live. Justice should be real. There is such a thing as right and wrong. We don't need to resign ourselves to the present reality. The best thing that we can do is strive to grow and learn and change and become more loving people. We shouldn't accept the fact that we have all these flaws. We should resign ourselves to letting God come into our lives and grow us into something more.
And that that should be a lifelong process that not only happens within us, but that we have the opportunity to help others within the context of community to grow while being deeply and personally engaged in love. Not judging one another and tearing one another down or shaming one another and to stop doing behaviors that annoy us. But coming together and saying, let's all strive together to be more like the people God created us to be. We don't need to learn to live in the status quo. When he says accept one another, that is not what he's saying. In fact, it's really helpful because language is, uh, is a moving target, right? And acceptance today may not mean exactly the same thing that acceptance meant 50 years ago. It's helpful to go back and look at the original language in which this word acceptance is being translated from and try to understand it, how it was understood in the time that it was written. In the Koine Greek, around 50, 60 AD, what did this word, what was the word? The word is proslambano in the Greek. That's being translated as when it says accept one another. And when we go and we look at the literature of that time, in what context, in what usage is this word prominent? How does it fit? And acceptance is a very poor translation because of the way that we use that modern word in English. What proslambano means is to receive or grant one access to one's heart. That's so different than tolerate one another. That's so different than just accept that you can't change each other, so get along. It's saying grant one another access to your heart. And when we understand what proslambano means here, it really deeply impacts the way we should understand what's being said. He says, therefore, accept one another just as Christ has accepted us to the glory of God. It goes so much further beyond our cultural concept of acceptance and tolerance. He says, receive one another into your hearts as Christ has received you into his. How, how different that is than the cursory reading might leave us to believe. What he's saying here is let down your guard. Stop holding one another at a distance and be intimate. Be vulnerable. Be real with one another. In the same way that God himself has made himself vulnerable and real and has made his heart available to you in the person of Jesus Christ. Oh, wow. That is so much better than accept. Because what God did in the person of Jesus Christ was he came, the all-powerful creator God of the universe, who needed nothing, came and dwelt among us and took on flesh and blood. He became somebody who could be hurt, became somebody who, could, who needed food, who needed clothing, who needed shelter, someone who could experience discomfort, who would be at the whims of other people's choices in the same way we are vulnerable to other people's choices. And he did this to demonstrate for us what we could be, what we were meant to be when he created us. And he lived a perfect life where he loved and he served and he sacrificed and he spoke the truth and he became a threat to the power structure the government, political, and religious power structure of his day. So they brought him up on trumped-up charges, dragged him in front of a, a, a false court, beat him, stripped him naked, and hung him on a cross where he would feel the pain and the agony of all that abuse. 
God received us into his heart. He brought us into his life and made himself vulnerable to us. And we did the worst possible thing that we could do, that we could invent in terms of causing pain and discomfort. And then God himself took the wrath that we deserve for all the evil that we've done and he poured it out on himself in the person of Jesus Christ so that we can be forgiven. That's what it means when it says, how did God receive us into his heart? He took it all. He let the worst kinds of things happen to him. He took the punishment that we deserve for all the evil of all time. He took it upon himself because he loves us and he wants a relationship with us and he had to do it or else we would all need to be destroyed because he is good and he must destroy evil. He took our place. Proslambano, he received you into his heart. And that, he says, is how you should receive one another. Let the people in your life into your heart. And this really highlights the difference between a Christian, biblical Christian way of life and the way of the world. You see, the way of the world, the best it can offer is acceptance and tolerance. Just live apart from people. And no one will ever know the real you if you never let anyone into your heart. They will never know the real you and you will never know the real them. But you can tolerate them. You can live next to them. You can have neighbors that you've never met before and you've lived next to each other for 10 years. You can do that. You can have relationships with people where all you do is poke them on Facebook. Wave at them as they leave the garage. That is easy to accept somebody under that kind of dynamic, but you don't let them into your heart. Then you wonder why you feel empty inside. You wonder why you're alone. You lie awake in your beds at night and you wonder, what? how come nobody knows the real me? What would somebody think if they knew the real me? I'm scared to death that somebody will find out the real me. And yet I'm desperate to be known. I'm desperate that someone could love me. When people don't talk about real things, when they just kind of bump up against one another, like strangers on a subway, we tolerate one another, but we don't grant one another access to our hearts, and we don't really relate to each other because we spend so much time trying to avoid conflict, so much time trying to keep ourselves from being in uncomfortable and awkward situations that we never find love. That's the way of the world. God's way is accept one another into your heart. Give one another access. He says, I myself am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. He says that in verse 13 and 14. And that's so useful because it really confirms when he says accept, he doesn't mean accept like we do. Why? How can you accept one another and admonish one another? Isn't admonishing someone, speaking the truth, speaking the hard truth in someone else's life, isn't that the very opposite of our cultural conception of acceptance? That's what you don't do if you accept somebody, is you don't offer a word of critique. Because that's not accepting. But proslambano, letting someone into your heart, he says, part of that is admonishment is speaking the truth in love, being so close that you actually are invited to reflect back and to speak in and to share the things that you see in my life where you think it would be good for me to change. We want to be that close, that real with one another. Loving somebody means helping them grow. 
And so we are to be this diverse community from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of ethnicities, all kinds of religions, all kinds of socioeconomic status. And we are to grant each other access to our heart to the point where we would have real conversations about what needs to change and how we need to grow. It means no elephants in the room. Now, all of you, most of you here are involved in communities. You're involved in home Bible studies. You have, you know, your, your nuclear family. You have your church family. And you know what an elephant in the room is? An elephant in the room is just, there's a glaring, obvious thing that no one is talking about, right? And what happens is, is when we refuse to grant access to our heart, when we refuse to live out community the way that God has called on us to really walk with Him, we find that there are things that are just taboo that are off limits. And we're going to keep everything on the surface. We're going to talk about news, sports, and weather. We're going to talk about the shows that we watched or the movies that made us laugh or the vacation that we just had. But we are not going to talk about the problems in our marriage the fears that we have regarding our children, the failures that we've had at work. We don't talk about those things because we are afraid. We're afraid of judging and being judged. We have glaring problems. There are some of us that have serious marriage problems, and we are doing our best together with our spouse to convince everybody that we're doing fine. And we're refusing to grant access to people in our hearts. This word admonishment, nutheteo, in the Greek is to impart understanding, right? Admonish, again, that carries with us this like, oh, admonish, that's like, you know, whipping somebody, right? Hitting them over the head with a club. That's how you admonish, right? He's saying, as you live a real life and as you come together in real community, Be actively engaged in helping each other grow in your understanding. Have a corrective influence on the people around you. Be close enough and love one another enough to literally and meaningfully speak into each other's lives. It's one of the greatest things that worries me about adult ministry, about the ministry that we are in, is the thing that I see that I'm trying, I'm, I'm wrestling to understand and to grasp, is why is it that as we get older, it gets harder and harder to be real with one another? You know, I worked with students for 14 years, you know, involved in home groups and, and college ministry and high school ministry, and maybe they're just too foolish to know the dangers of this, right? <laughs> I mean, there's a sense of like, you know, they'll just, you know, blurt out, hey, dude, you got a problem, and here it is, and, you know, it's just like... Wow. But it can't be that they're more mature, right? Spiritually, emotionally, whatever, they're not more mature. So why is it that people, when they're younger, and I've experienced this in myself, um, I'm not somebody who's struggled mightily to speak the truth into other people's lives. That's something that um, uh, people who are close to me would would call a strength or um, a problem, depending on... (laughs) (laughs) the context, Uh, but it's much more difficult now at 40 than it was at 25. Why? Why is it harder? And I've seen it in a lot of my friends. I've got friends who, you know, I knew them when they were 22, and they they were much more actively engaged in speaking the truth in love. And as they've gotten older, uh, I've, I've seen them get more and more conservative and less and less willing. Why? Why is the unwillingness to admonish one another such a deficit as we get older? What's the connection there? Why does it get harder? I've theorized maybe it's because so many of us are engaged in professional work environments, right? I mean, you go out into the world and you go to the office and you start admonishing people, uh, you know, that shirt and those pants don't match, right? You know, or... Uh, oh, you've got a problem at home. Well, do you realize it's because you have an anger problem? Like, imagine going to the office and saying these things, right? It's like that was a completely inappropriate thing to do in a professional workplace. 
And we have a culture that's bent, hell-bent on acceptance and tolerance under that other definition. And so maybe as we go out into the world, and the pressure there is to not love, is to not let people into your heart, but to protect yourself and to keep your distance, maybe we're so inundated with that that it begins to seep into our spiritual communities as well. I think that very well may be a part of what we see. Why it becomes so hard for us to to move toward one another and say, the way your parenting is working right now is bad for your kids. Who, Who wants to say that, right? That's a dangerous thing to engage with somebody on. Then again, maybe it's our love of comfort. You know, as we get older, uh, we sort of feel like we paid our dues. We, you know, slept on the mattress on the floor, right? Uh, We were young and we were hungry once, but we got here by working hard. And frankly, I'd like to remove myself from some of the very painful and difficult things. I feel like I've earned that right. And so we'll let the other guys have the hard conversations, the difficult conversations. Maybe a big part of it is, is that we have more to lose. You know, as a young man, there were so many things in my life. I was, it was so much easier to take risks because it only affected me, right? You know, I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't have kids that needed a dad. I didn't have a spouse, you know, and so I could, you know, do crazy things and not think twice about it. Now I do something dangerous and my little girl pops into my head. And I think, you know, uh, I don't want my daughter to grow up without a dad. And so maybe that pours over into other areas too. Uh, I have fewer friends than I used to. You know, when you're a student, the amount of turnover in your life is incredible. I've thought about this a lot. I've thought about how, you know, when you're in college, you have a new class every quarter. So the people that you're in that class with, they are 10-week friends. They have an expiration date of 10 weeks, and then you will never see them again. And so risking saying you know, strong words into their lives is like, well, I mean, it'll be awkward, but bye, right? (laughs) You work at a gas station, and the turnover there is, you know, every two weeks someone gets fired or quits or just doesn't show up, and you can get another job like that real easily, so why why not take the risk? Your neighbors are only your neighbors for one year. The risk in those relationships is very low, but as we get older, not only do our relationships and our field of relationships get smaller, but they become more permanent. If you make your, ang- your neighbor mad, you may have 10 years of nasty looks coming across the cul-de-sac, right? There's a sense of permanence to those relationships, and so the risk level goes up. And if that's true, if that's how we feel, maybe it becomes harder to be real with one another when there's so much more at risk. And maybe we don't even think about it, but we sort of subconsciously sense the danger of alienating people in this way. The risk is higher. Ephesians 4, 14 and 15 says, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. By the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. That this speaking the truth and love is an integral part of our development into being more loving people that have more loving communities that have something to demonstrate to the world that doesn't know God something of the power of God that they can see in our relationships with one another and speaking the truth and love is right at the heart. Accepting one another, granting one another access to our hearts means taking the risk of speaking into others' lives and inviting others to speak into yours. When we don't receive admonishment, when we let this aspect go and we diminish, read what happens here. 
He says, don't be tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness and deceitful scheming. This is what happens when we stop speaking the truth. We become like a capsized rowboat in a hurricane, battered around, tossed at the will and whim of our environment with no moorings, no stability, no way to really understand our context and who we are. When we lose the ability and the willingness and the importance of speaking the truth in love, we lose our moorings and we become victim to a world system that does not know love, it just knows tolerance. That's how important it is. And when we see that something like that is diminishing in our community, we have to understand what's at stake, what's at threat. It's love. Love is what we lose when we refuse to be comfortable, when we demand to be comfortable and refuse to speak into each other's lives. We lose our direction. We become stagnant in our growth as individuals, as people. I'm not talking about how home churches grow. I'm talking about you as a follower of Jesus Christ. You just feel like something's missing and you wonder what it is as you choose again and again and again to do the comfortable thing. Ephesians 4.15, we are to grow up in all aspects into him. That We are made to grow and to be transformed, to be made like him. We say, well, yeah, but it's so scary. It's so scary to talk to people about this stuff, about real things. Yeah, it is. It is scary. But it doesn't have to be negative. It doesn't have to be like this, you know, um, you know, going to the principal's office and sitting someone down, right, and having this really uh, stern conversation. It doesn't have to be that way. If we are of unity of mind and unity of purpose, being of one mind, like he says, and we are inviting one another into our hearts, this can be a joyful thing, a great thing. Well, we need guidelines. We don't admonish one another with our opinions, right? We're not like, um, <clears throat> I noticed uh, you don't eat red meat. Uh, red meat's delicious, and I think this is a problem in your life, right? <laughs> That's an opinion, right? Who are you to impress your opinions on someone else? So we don't take opinions. We take the word of God, the things that God says matter. And we bring those things because we have already agreed as a community to follow the word of God and to let one another into our hearts. So we have a framework for discussing these things that begins with we are all failures and have problems. That's why we become Christians. That's what it takes to become a Christian. You have to come to the point where you say, I am imperfect and I need forgiveness from God, and there is no other way I'm going to make it. Jesus Christ, I need you in my life. I accept your payment for my sins on the cross. That's how you become a Christian. So by the fact that you're a Christian, you should already be well aware that you have lots of problems, right? And everyone else in your community has agreed we have problems in our lives. We are sinners who need a savior. And we can take what God says matters and say, hey, I see this in your life. What do you see in mine? And let's be real and let's talk about these things and let's rejoice together that Jesus Christ has paid for those foibles, those fallen, broken aspects of who we are. We don't need to admonish people who don't follow the Bible. It makes no sense to take the scriptures and say, hey, this thing that you don't believe in, that you've never read, and that um, you have no understanding of, you, you're accountable to this, right? The conversation we need to have with people who don't accept the Bible is, is that they need Jesus Christ in their lives. 
Maybe we would use the Bible to do that, but we don't go around trying to fix them and fix their moral problems when they don't have the knowledge of God, the spirit of God, or a relationship with God. This is for us in-house. And it's the basis through which we approach one another. Proverbs 9, 7 says, He who corrects a scoffer gets dishonor for himself, and he who reproves a wicked man gets insults for himself. This is for when we agree, once we've granted one another access to our hearts. Now we do this. Not on the basis of opinion, but on the basis of the word of God. We admonish our spiritual family members who have mutually agreed that this is what the way that we want to live. Proverbs 17.10, a rebuke goes deeper into one who has understanding than a hundred blows to a fool. I love that picture. You can punch a fool a hundred times and he will not be impacted like a wise person receiving a rebuke. Proverbs 25.12, like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. A lot of you are probably thinking, oh, I would value so much someone with the ability and the willingness to speak into my life. I just don't know anybody like that. Everybody around me is too afraid and too weak and too scared or doesn't care enough about me. I would look at someone like that as though they were pure gold. Let me tell you something. The reason you don't have anybody like that in your life is because you've told them you're scary. The people who would admonish, who would speak, who would love you in that way have been trained by you to shut their traps. And you might think, no, 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 I'm a wide open book. Ask someone. I challenge you to go to someone and say, do you feel like the people in my life are free and that they will not, that they, they know that I welcome input and see what they say. If they avoid the question, if they turn running, screaming in the opposite direction, then you've got a pretty good answer of where your problem starts in terms of having people like this in your life. Maybe the problem also is because you have refused to be this person for others. That's a problem too. There should be lots of people in your life, four, five, six different people in your life that you are close enough with that they can play this role with you and you with them. Proverbs 28, 23, he who rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with the tongue. If you really bring love and truth into someone's life, that becomes the foundation for a real relationship. People don't throw away people who really love them and want them to grow. We cling to those people. We feel like we don't have enough of those people in our lives because not enough of us are willing to be those people. And in a lot of ways, it's a simple matter of willingness on our part to decide, I'm going to be somebody who loves other people God's way. I'm going to grant them access to my heart, and I'm going to speak the truth in love. Because the consequences of not doing that are too great. And so it's important to look at this. This is done in a relational context. These are things that we do with the people who are closest to us, not somebody that we just met or somebody who we stay far away from because all their things annoy us. And some of us are thinking, oh, there's some annoying people in my life. I would love to go admonish. Thank you, Ryan. Right? Don't do that if you don't love them. If you spend your time avoiding that person because they are annoying, you are not the person because you have not granted them access to your heart. This is done in a relational context, according to God's word, in a spirit of brotherhood. Acts 20, 31 says, Therefore be on the alert, remembering that night and day, for a period of three years, I didn't cease to admonish each one of you with tears. Paul says, I was with you three years, and what did I do? I wept with you, and I struggled with you to see you grow 
It's a painful process, but the admonisher can weep with the admonishee. Let's change. Let's grow. It doesn't have to be this way. Let's go to God together and pray together and look at the word of God together and admit that we need each other's help. We do this in full awareness of our own sin. I'm a Christian. means I'm a sinner and I have problems. And I can't go to anybody with any of their problems until I have full acceptance of the fact that I've got problems that even though I've been walking with God for 20 years, I still have no clue. God will still be revealing new things. Psalm 139, 23 and 24, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way within me and lead me in the everlasting way. It starts with, I am a broken person. It's about being eager to be admonished ourselves. That's how we change. You want to think about how we can change the environment of your home group. How is it that your home group has become sleepy in this way? And everyone's sitting around talking about stuff that doesn't really matter. The teaching's over, and everyone's huddled around the snack table talking about what they saw on TV last night. How do we change that? It's probably not by going around and starting to admonish everyone. It's probably by inviting people to admonish you. To say, I want to have real things, real conversations. I have real problems and I need help. And modeling that for others. A lot of us are engaged here. The real problem is probably... A big part of it is this, that we have uh, subconsciously and in unspoken terms entered into a conspiracy of silence with our spouse, with our home church members, where we say, look, I've got stuff that I really don't want anyone to see, and if they do see it, the last thing I want is for them to talk to me about it. So I'll make you a deal. I notice you got stuff like that too. I won't mess with your stuff, and you don't mess with my stuff, and we'll all pretend like everything's fine. I think that's a deal that many of us have struck. Some of us have struck it with our spouses. I, you know, when you, here's, a, here's a way to know. When you have that thought of, oh, I'm not going to bring that up because I will just pay too heavy a price if I bring that up. That tells you right there that you have limited access to your heart to that person. And you look at it and you say, well, I may lose friends. I don't, I don't have a lot of friends left. You know, my life is not as rich with relationships. And I, some of these relationships span 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And I don't want to put that on the line. You may lose relationships. You may alienate close friends and people you care about if you engage in this, even if you do it the right way, and it will hurt. This is not an easy thing. Granting people access to your heart is as dangerous as it sounds. And some who don't know God would say it's foolhardy. But please, for a moment, just for a moment, let's ponder the alternative If we go on refusing to do this, refusing to be real and speak about real things, refusing to be of one mind, of one purpose, and granting access to our hearts, refusing to admonish and speak the truth in love, what will ultimately happen? We will have no unity. We will have no authenticity, and we will have no love. We lose it all. And we become a social club, you know, a thing where we all stare across the room and, you know, talk about nothing and engage with nothing and have nothing to offer one another. That's what's at stake. I know how painful it is to think about moving forward, but think about the price of the status quo. We are no different from the world system if we don't have real relationships with one another. 
Paul wrote, or uh, Ajith Fernando in his book, The Call to Joy and Pain, wrote this about Paul. He says, Paul shared long lists of his suffering in his epistles, but it's clear from the tone of the different passages that his greatest pain came through the sin, wrong beliefs, and rejection of the Christians in the churches he helped. Whatever nation or culture we live in, if we are committed to people, we will face much pain. This is not a call to a comfortable life. This is a call to a real life, a great life, a life with love right at the center. And if we refuse to do this, if we refuse to engage in real community, the pain we wish to avoid by staying silent, and I know how tempting it is, but that pain is nothing. It's nothing compared to the heartbreak of shallow Christian fellowship. Some of you are quite critical of your home group. You're sitting around and you're like, this is shallow and it's not exciting and I don't know, I don't even feel like this is a great place to bring my friends who don't know God because I don't know what's really going on here. I just have been doing it for a while. What you're saying is it's missing authenticity. Authenticity comes by talking about the things that matter and granting access to each other's hearts. There you have it. God, uh, we are not a perfect people, and uh, we have a long way to go, a lot of growth in all of our lives, um, but we are so grateful that you're involved intimately in that, in that process. And we invite you, God, to, uh, to show us where we need to up the authenticity in our group, in our lives. Show us where we need to grant people access to our hearts. And thank you for dying for us on the cross and for giving us the opportunity and the ability to have these kinds of relationships. In Jesus' name, amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.